0: Yeah. psalmist said in psalm 16 you make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy you know today like every single sunday we declare the joy we have in the lord the bible tells us uh, over and over again that there's joy in the house of the lord we've sang about that this morning as we think about joy think about Happiness and we begin to compare the two you may wonder what is the difference between joy and happiness? Well joy is not the external uh, circumstantial type of emotion that happiness is. You see joy is seated in something so much so much more secure than the environment that we may find ourselves in or the, the, the predicament of the day. According to William Barclay, joy has nothing to do with material things. It has nothing to do with a man's outward circumstances. Instead, as we think about joy, joy is the gift of God. Joy is something that, that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, is something that God gives us of Himself. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that in me your joy may be full. You see, the Lord makes it clear in His Word that He is our joy. So William Vanderhoven said it well. He said, life need not be easy to be joyful. He said, joy is not the absence of trouble, but it's the presence of Christ. Jesus is our joy. And so today, it doesn't matter what you may be facing. You might be on the mountaintop. You may be in the valley. You may be somewhere in between. But Jesus is your joy. You see... You may wonder, how is that possible? How can I have joy when I got this bad news? How can I have joy when things in my life seem to be crumbling around me? How can I be joyful in that? It's possible because Jesus is your joy. The presence of Christ is the presence of joy. C.S. Lewis, understanding this, magnified this idea when he says joy is the serious business of heaven. You see, heaven is heaven because Jesus is present. When Jesus takes up residence in a person's life, joy fills that house. And yet, tragically, we understand what the Bible tells us. The Bible says that because of our sin, because of our sin nature, the human heart is seeking to keep Jesus off the throne. Jesus absent from our lives. In our sinfulness, in our sinful nature, we want to take uh, uh, the things, the forms of worship, the forms of religion, and set up paradigms that mimic only what Jesus can offer To us, those paradigms and those religious forms, those religious structures only leave a person empty and self righteous and joyless. The religious conditions of the human heart are on full display as we come again to Luke chapter 5 this morning. We're going to see that their religious structure, their religious forms, their self righteousness, their pursuit to make themselves better left them in no other state other than a gloomy, joyless, Situation, As we see here in Luke chapter 5, as we finish this chapter this morning, Luke is going to kind of put a, a rubber stamp, a finalization on this dichotomy between Jesus and the religious elite. This contrasting that he's been going and sharing. We're going to see that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God and with it brings a fountain of joy that religion can never give us. If you've got a Bible... Take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And let's just begin reading in verse 33. Luke says this, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told him a parable. No one takes or no one tears a piece from the new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old. Is good. The Pharisees, as we have walked through this chapter over the last several weeks, we can understand that the Pharisees and the scribes really struggled with Jesus. They really struggled to understand where Jesus was coming from and understand his teachings that he was sharing. You see, they couldn't fit his teaching within their paradigm. They couldn't make his understandings or, or his uh, uh, way of going about the, the work of God and the, the fellowship with God. It couldn't fit... Their life and their way they viewed life. These men wondered how Jesus and his disciples, think about this, could follow God and not do all of the religious things that they thought and they believe spoke of a spiritual life. And so this morning as we contemplate what's taking place in this passage, I believe we're confronted with a reality. Here it is. The way in which we follow Jesus depends on what we know About him, and what do we know about the Lord? It's the only thing that that we can know is what the Word of God gives us. And so, the Pharisees and scribes that we see here in chapter 5, I believe, are a good picture, a good example of you and I today. You see, we look at Jesus and we look at Christianity and we look at the spiritual life, and we may infer upon that what we know or what we believe about Jesus when we need to make sure that what we are inferring upon that is none other than what the Word of God reveals to us about Jesus. And so what do we know of Jesus? Well, Jesus gives us a clear picture of himself in all of these stories that we're reading here in Luke chapter 5. And so these men represent you and I. What we see in all of this, what we see in the teaching of Scripture in general is that God has created us, you and I. As worshipers. And we're not talking just about singing songs as we were just doing in this beautiful new space with our beautiful stage up here and our beautiful voices. It's not just about that. But we're to worship God in all things, all aspects of our life. God has created us to be worshipers. We were created to worship Him. But the Bible tells us that sin has broken that. Sin has messed that up. And so we no longer seek to worship God. What we're now seeking to do is not worship the creator, but we're seeking to worship the created. And we do that in all forms and fashions. We do that in all sorts of ways. In fact, in our religion, because we are worshipers by nature, by creation, we default and create religious practices, religious forms, religious paradigms that we construct and reconstruct to give the appearance of spiritual health and acceptance before the Lord. We believe that our religiosity will make us right before God. And this is the case with the Jewish religion during the days of the Pharisees that we're reading. You see, unfortunately, Judaism, like every other religion, morphed into a vain attempt at self-righteousness. The Pharisees here that are confronting Jesus believed that through their keeping of the Mosaic law, they could be right with God, that God would accept them based upon how well they kept the law. And so in order to keep the law, what the Pharisaical uh, elite did was create more laws. They put laws on top of laws. And surely if you have law upon law upon law upon law, that you're going to make yourself able and put yourself in a position to keep those. Because you're going to have all these reminders along the way. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And ultimately, you will keep the commandment. Well, that never happened. I was in Israel recently and observed how some of their uh, abilities or their attempts to keep certain laws, they have all of these different things. I, I, I'm not speaking critically at all, but on the Shabbat on Saturday, we we're there, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't use this coffee machine, but I could use that coffee machine. It just didn't make sense to me from my American evangelical mindset and so they created all of these laws layer them upon one another so that they could keep the law of God and be accepted by the Lord so rather than their religiosity bringing them closer to God what we see throughout the gospels even through the epistles is that that religiosity made them rigid and crusty and joyless And so it's into this lifeless religion that Jesus here is offering and emphasizing a better option. Really what I believe he's saying is it's out with the old and it's in with the new. And so I want us to look at this confrontation together and I want us to see the superiority of relationship over religion. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ over religion, whatever that may be. There's four things I want to point out as we just kind of walk through the text this morning. First of all, I want you to see a religious question that's posed in verse 33. The Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus and his disciples and they say, hey, John's disciples fast, our disciples fast. We look at you, Jesus, and your followers and they're not praying and fasting. What's what's going on here? They're posing a religious question. And so this conversation that's been taking place over Levi's dinner party and Jesus being there is continued on into this next passage. The religious elite are, are still dumbfounded. They still can't understand how Jesus could, could attend such a party, and they couldn't understand why He would do something so scandalous in their religion. Why would he eat and drink with sinners? And so their comment here showed them to be what we might call religious ascetics. Religious people who believe that to be right with God, you must avoid all forms of pleasure. So their comment here assumes a question. These men and even John's disciples are fasting and praying, but Jesus and his disciples don't seem to be fasting and praying. Why do you not do that, Jesus? So we learn from this that the ascetic believes that abstinence makes one godlier and pleasing before the Lord. And so they here are calling for fasting, calling for prayer. And so I just want to ask the question, is there anything wrong with fasting? Is there anything wrong with praying? Not at all. In fact, I would commend those to you this morning. I would commend to you that as a follower of Jesus, you ought to be praying. You ought to be seeking the face of God. I would commend to you today that as a follower of Jesus, there ought to be times in your life that you pull away from food for a period of time to seek the Lord through fasting. This was something that was a common practice in the Old Testament. It's a common practice in the New Testament. But when we think about fasting, we should not put on that any more than the Word of God did. And the only commandment we see about fasting was that on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the Jews were to fast. Luke 16, or Leviticus 16. If the Pharisees came along prior to the the, the gospel era here, they began to build these laws, add to these laws. And so they came up with a process so that people could be godly. They began to say, to be a good Jew, to be a godly Jew, you have to fast two times a week, Monday and Thursday. And so that became the practice. Jews would fast on those two days. Did God say they had to do this? No. Was it a good practice? Maybe. But it did not improve their status before the Lord. So for them, fasting became a means to mourn before the Lord. In doing so, they began to use it to seek God's attention. It gains God's attention by offering a mournful flesh. Their mournful flesh to the Lord. And so this effect... ...was that they began to look at religion... ...or really their religion began to look like nothing more than something that's solemn... ...something that's joyless, something that is gloomy. In their minds, you could not be considered spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. In other words, you had to do the things you didn't want to do... ...rather than do the things that you would like to do. You could not have pleasure. And I believe too often... Even in our own day, Christians can fall into this ascetic trap and view worship through a gloomy lens. Now, I'm not saying this morning we ought to advocate that we come in here and run around and be crazy and do stuff. But you do you, right? Let's worship the Lord. Let's have fun. Let's have a joyfulness about us that is not something that we're imputing to ourselves. But it's something that's growing from within us as we know the Lord and grow in the Lord and enjoy the Lord. But too many times, like Irma Bombeck wrote... We come into the church house like someone who has just uh, read the will of their great aunt and thinking they're going to get everything, but you read a little bit further and you realize she left all of it to her hamster. <laughs> the Pharisees here could not understand Jesus' walk with God. And we too failed to grasp the model at times that he presented. And so in response to this religious question, Jesus offered a relational answer. That's the second thing I want you to see. This relational answer in verses 34 and 35. The Lord here answers with a wedding analogy. Now, I want you to just... Go with me and, and think about Jewish weddings for a moment, because that's what he's going to use as an analogy. There's four phases to a Jewish wedding. The first phase is where the, the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom get together. This is this contractual phase, and they agree to this contraction, this agreement, this arrangement that their son or their daughter and their son are going to get get married, and, and there's a bride price pays. So the the father of the groom pays the father of the bride and is a dad of three girls. Can we bring that over to America, right? Can we bring that Eastern (laughs) tradition to America? I'm thinking I don't need money, but a 3000 acre hunting contract would be awesome or a slip at Lake Anna. If any of you guys have sons that are going to marry my daughter one day or one of my daughters, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Or there's no deal. So there's this contract that effectively began the marriage, even though at this point the couple are not living together. They've not consummated the the wedding. They've not consummated the marriage. And so that leads into the second phase, which consisted of an indefinite period in which the groom returns to his father's house to prepare a place for them to live. And so this is an indefinite period of time. He's preparing there, and while he's preparing, the bride is at her house. Watching for his return because he could come at any moment and the marriage could take place. But only when the preparations are ready and only when that groom's father says everything is good would the groom leave, go get his bride, and the marriage come to finality. And so that brings us to the third. The groom comes for the bride. There's a celebration. This third phase is a celebration. It could last for seven days. And they would eat and they would drink and they would dance and they would party. There would be music. It was a big, big celebration. As they celebrated all that the Lord was doing between the union of this man and this woman and all that would come from it. And then it brought in the final phase. After the celebration, as the man and the woman consummate the marriage. And they live together and build a family, and so Jesus' answer to this religious question clearly is recalling the celebration that takes place during a wedding. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. This is not a time for gloominess. This is not a time for, for denying oneself. No, it would be ludicrous. Think about this. You're going to a wedding this summer. You go to that wedding, and they've got food for you there. They've got dancing for you there. It's a time of celebration, and you're sitting there with a stoic look on your face, and you're saying, I don't want any of that good food. Give me the rotten stuff. No, we don't do that at weddings. We go there to party. We go there to celebrate. We go there to have a good time, and it's a time of joy. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a time for celebrating and joyfulness. He asserts here that his presence justified the feast that Levi threw. And that his followers had the joyous privilege of a perpetual wedding party. And so there's going to come a day, Jesus says, when he will no longer be here. And in that day, his disciples will fast and pray. But that day is not today. That's the response he gives. So the relational answer Jesus offers to the Pharisees, religious question, is making clear that being in the presence of Jesus brings relentless joy. Their old perspective on walking with God needed a fresh update. It needed some cleansing, some house cleaning going on. Their understanding of who Jesus was needed clarity. And this morning, maybe your understanding of Jesus needs a fresh update. Maybe it needs some clarity. Maybe your idea and thought of what church ought to be or the Christian life ought to be is not what the Bible says. So I would say to to you today, get a fresh update. Understand that Jesus is the joy in your life. Jesus wants to bring joy to you. Not happiness, not perpetual good times in this life, but joy in any circumstance. And that doesn't come through religion. Man, you come here all, all, every week, all year long, and sing songs and go through the motions and never have the presence and the power and the joy of the Lord. But when you find Jesus and he changes you from the inside out, it doesn't matter if you get the bad call from the doctor. It doesn't matter if the economy tanks. There's joy in the Lord. That's what these men need to figure out. And so to help these religious people better understand, Jesus offers, thirdly, a relatable example. Verse 36 and 38, he shares with them a parable. He talks about how no one tears a piece from a new garment. Puts it on an old garment. He talks about you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Here he's comparing the situation of these things. And he's making the point that a new era has arrived with his coming. And so I want you to just imagine this afternoon. You go home, you eat lunch, you maybe take a nap and you run down to your favorite store. Maybe you're going to do this this coming week sometime. But you go to all your favorite clothing stores and you're looking for that special outfit. Maybe it's for Mother's Day this next week. You get home, you got that special outfit after you spent all day shopping and and, and you found it, you bring it home. And instead of putting it in your closet and making sure that it's ready for the next time you're ready to wear it. But instead you take your scissors and you begin to cut on that thing. And you cut a piece off of that brand new shirt that you bought. And you take that piece and you sew it onto your old ragged shirt that you need to replace. Rather than wearing the new, you cut from the new and you put it onto the old. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? I mean, if my kids, we bought them a a new outfit and we put it in their closet. If I walked in and I saw them with a pair of scissors cutting that thing up, you think I'd be very happy? Not at all. I'd send them to your house and be like, you don't need a bride price. She's yours. That's what he's saying here. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Two reasons. First, you would ruin the new shirt. By cutting it up. And second, the new shirt would not match the old shirt. The pattern's not going to be the same. And so Judaism, think about this. As good as it was, had become an old, worn-out garment. It had played its role. Now a new era is dawning. And so it could not be patched with a few things taken from the gospel. It's not Jesus lumped on to the old covenant no the new covenant in jesus replaces the old covenant in the law the gospel of the new covenant is too dynamic for the old structures jesus further sealed his point with an even more vivid illustration with the new wine and the new wine skins in the ancient cultures the skins of goats were tanned and then they were sewed into bags in which they would put new wine and those goat skins, when they were tanned, were strong, they were elastic, and so they would give with a new wine, the fermented wine, as it would continue to ferment within that goat skin, it would expand, and it would expand with the wine. And so they could keep it. It wouldn't burst. But Jesus says it makes no sense, and no one would ever take new wine that's fermenting and expanding and put it into an old wine skin that's already expanded to its ultimate expansion. Because if you did, it's going to burst that because it's old, it's brittle, it's not very elastic. And so you wouldn't do that because you'd lose both the wineskin and the wine. And so what he's saying here is you can't put into the old system what the new system is bringing. R.K. Hughes shares a story from Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse that I believe really illustrates this new life that Jesus is talking about. He, talks, he shares how uh, Barnhouse was uh, walking outside of the city of Mons during the, uh, the World War I. And so after the armistice of World War I, this Barnhouse scholar, Dr. Garrett, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, used to walk around and visit the battlefields around Belgium. And so if you throw the story there, in the city of Mons, outside of it, during the first year of the war, there was a great British retreat. But in the final year of the war, there was a great German retreat. And so you could go outside the city of Mons and you could see all of the things that were left behind when German, or, or the German army left the city of Mons. They left tanks and trucks and artillery and all kinds of equipment. And so one spring day, Barnhouse is walking outside on that road on the west side of the city of Mons. And so for miles, you could see all of this equipment littered. And so as he's walking on this beautiful, sunshiny day, there's not a, a, a bit of wind in the air. Everything's calm and still. As he's walking around examining these things, he begins to notice that the leaves falling from the trees above him are brittle and crisp. And so he grabs one of the leaves as it's falling down, and he just kind of smushes it in his hand, and it just crumbles to almost powder immediately. And so he's wondering about this. Why in the world are leaves falling this time of year? Then he begins to realize, well, the wind's not blowing to knock them off. It's not autumn. What is it? And He's like, it must be Something coming from within. And he realizes that the greatest force in the world comes from within. It's the force of life. And he understood here that the sap was beginning to run up the trunks of the trees. Buds were forming from within. And down deep in the earth, roots were sending life along the trunk, the branch, and the twigs. Until all of that life expelled all of the deadness that was remaining from the previous year. I believe this morning I was outside walking, the not walking the dog, but taking her out to to go to the restroom, and we have some beech trees out behind our house, and I, I personally don't like them. I would love to cut every one of them down because they never lose their leaves until this time of year, right? If you know what I'm talking about, they will lose some in the fall, but they don't lose them until the spring when the new leaves come out. And I just saw this picture all over again because the life coming from within begins to push the deadness out. And that's what Jesus here is talking about. Through this example of new wine, Jesus is showing us that when he fills our life, the swelling life from within expands us beyond our imagination. And this new life expels unneeded qualities In our life, in every aspect of our life. You see, once Christ takes up residence in us, every aspect of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our our will, all of them undergo a change. This leads us to a fourth point. Jesus here shares a regrettable sentiment. Look at verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. I'll be honest. I read this, and I started studying this a few weeks ago, and verse 39 just dumbfounded me. I'm like, Luke, are you recording something Jesus said, and it's contradicting? I'm thinking, I don't know much about wine because I don't drink it, but I always thought old wine was good wine, right? You want the old stuff. That's the expensive stuff. And so, of course, if you drink the old, you don't want the new because that's the better. Why? That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not the point Jesus is making. Th- this proverb in, the ver- in this verse reveals really a travesty that happens all too often in our lives. You see, many people who have not tasted the new are determined to never try it because they're satisfied with what they already have. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not giving us a a, a lesson or taking us to school on fine wine. If that was the case, we would buy old wine and leave the new stuff for the people who can't afford the old stuff, right? But what Jesus is saying here is when when you're satisfied with what you've already had, you have no desire for what you don't even know you need. And the Pharisees and scribes here are asking Jesus these questions. Why are you not fasting and praying? Are satisfied with the old covenant when God has ushered in a new covenant, the new kingdom of God, the full kingdom of God. Everything that the old covenant was pointing toward is now right there before them in Jesus Christ. And so they cannot imagine that Jesus offers them something better, but instead are satisfied with what they have and don't even want to take the step to compare By tasting to see if it's good. So this arrogance and this stubbornness and this folly was the sentiment of the Pharisees who questioned Jesus. And he's making clear to them that in his presence is boundless joy. It's not going to be found in religious law, religious rote. It's in his presence there is forgiveness and sin. It's in his presence that you find life transformation. It's in his presence that, that you find everything that you've always looked for. He is superior to everything else. He's superior to our religious activity. And yet they're satisfied in their own religion. Let me give you three applications real quick. And I think we'll be finished right on time. The story of my life. Don't have to say that. But I was honest, I was a little nervous earlier because i technically only got 35 minutes this morning instead of my normal 40 to whatever I want. And, uh, and then Ricky sang that other verse, and I'm like, dude, I'm thinking to myself, I, gotta, I, I got a long ways to go in this. So I think we're going to finish right on time. Let me give you three applications. Number one, religion is the natural activity of people. Religion is the natural activity of people. Of people. I said earlier that God's created us to be worshipers. That's what we we're created to do. And so because we are worshipers, we will worship. We will worship something or someone. In our sinfulness, and our fallenness, that worship of the something always comes back to ourselves in some form or fashion. Yet we may be worshiping an object, but it is for our own gratification. Stephen Board said this, He says, from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 3, we learn that mankind knows knows something of the true God, but turns instead to elaborate substitutes. Right? We, We turn to substitutes. Far from a quest for God, human religion is an evasion of Him. We are worshipers, but in our fallenness, we want nothing with God. So the Bible reveals that humanity was created by God, created for God, created to be in relationship with Him. We were created to worship, bring glory to His name. But sin has broken that. Sin has marred that. Sin has messed that aspect of our creation up. But it did not eliminate it. We will and we do worship. We have an innate desire to do so. So religion is the natural activity of people. Here's the second application. Religion is not sufficient in and of itself. Humanity was not, simp- not, was not created simply to worship anything. We were created by God and for God, created to worship Him alone. So that means that you can't just go and worship whatever you want, and it do what you desire, what you need in your heart. It will never satisfy you, will never fill you up. Uh, the great theologians, Audio Adrenaline, one of my favorite Christian bands from the 90s. I'm dating myself here. Used to sing a song called God-Shaped Hole. And that's exactly, I, I believe, what we can see in our lives. We were created for God with this hole in our life because of sin. And nothing can fill that hole except God himself. You think of... If you've got children, young children, you think of those play toys that they have. And there's always that box or that globe or something that's all, got all the different shapes. And you, you can only get that thing through the hole if it's the right thing that fits the hole. So if you've got a triangle, it fits the triangle. If it's a circle, it fits the circle. You can't get anything else in there. That's the idea. The only thing that can fill the void in your life that you're cramming everything else into is Jesus Christ. Amen. Religious activity won't fill that hole. Right, You can pray, you can go through uh, uh, religious motions and sacraments and whatever you want to call them, and it will never fill that hole. You can chase everything this world has to offer. It will never fill that hole. Pharisees are prime examples of that. If there's anyone that should have known who God was, should have identified Jesus, that he is truly God, he is the Messiah, he is the one to redeem them, it should have been them, but they missed it. Because they were so focused on religion, they couldn't see who Jesus was. Couldn't understand that he was there to fill them and give them the joy that they desired. And so it's not sufficient in and of itself. Thirdly, religion must be replaced with relationship. What we're seeing here in Luke chapter 5 is this call from religion to relationship. For instance, Jesus calls the fisherman to himself. He calls Simon and Andrew, James and John, and they leave everything and follow him. He calls to the leper and he says, come follow me. Changes his life. He heals him. He forgives his sin. He heals the paralytic. He touches Levi's life and all of them are called into relationship. Jesus did not call them to more religious activity. Jesus didn't say to Simon and Andrew, you guys are fishermen, but if you kind of get to church more often, your lives would be a lot better. Now, I'm not saying that church is not good for you. It is, and I'm glad you're here this morning. We need to be together. But if you want your life fixed, it's not just coming and sitting in a seat, singing a song, and listening to a dude talk on Sunday morning. It's got to be more than that. He didn't look at the leper and say, if you'd go find the best dermatologist in Jerusalem and follow his practices and do what he tells you to do, then you will be better and more in tune with God. He didn't do that. He didn't say, clean yourself up. He didn't say that to Levi. He didn't go up to Levi there in the tax booth and say, buddy, if you would stop doing these things and stop being a tax collector, stop living like a sinner, kind of clean yourself up, then maybe the father would look at you with some loving eye not what he said. He didn't say, go to the synagogue more. He didn't say, get yourself right with God. He says, come and follow me. You see religion and our desire to worship can't be just in religion. It has to be focused on a relationship and that's found in Jesus Christ. In every one of these situations, the ones who decided to come into relationship with the Lord and follow him experience immeasurable joy. Can you imagine Simon and Andrew when he says, hey, come follow me? You, you think that's wonderful? You think that's amazing that you caught all of those fish and the, the nets are breaking? Man, come follow me. And they're just like, they can't wait to jump out of the boat. They can't wait to go tell dad and say, hey, you're going to have to find someone else to run the business. We're going with him. Can you imagine the joy in the leper when he's all of a sudden clean like we've talked about over the last few weeks? Can you imagine the paralytic and his joy jumping up and taking his bed and telling everybody about Jesus? Can you imagine the joy in Levi having his life literally changed? I mean, he was so excited about the Lord, he wanted to tell all of his friends about it. Joy comes to the life of the believer. In all of these stories, there's only one group of people that had no joy. Do you know who those were? The Pharisees and scribes are you not fasting and praying? We do it. John's disciples do it. We have even dealt with that. John is an Old Testament prophet, the last of his kind. He's kind of the bridge between the Old and the New Covenant. There's nothing wrong with his disciples fasting and praying, but that wasn't the point here. The point is, Jesus is who we're to look to, not another religious activity. It's an out with the old. It's an in with the new. The Pharisees failed to come into relationship, failed to follow Jesus because they misunderstood who he was and what he came to do. So this morning, let's not forget that the way in which we follow Jesus depends on what we know about him. What do we know about Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is God the Son. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The Bible tells us that Jesus came not to make us religious, but to make us godly. And how does he do that? He didn't say, try harder. He says, I'll do it for you. I'll go to the cross. I'll die in your place. I'll be the sacrifice. I'll be the substitute. My blood is pure blood, and it is sufficient blood to pay the penalty that your sin owes to God the Father. You can't do this, but I can do this. And he willingly stretched his arms out so that we could be forgiven. I love the words that Jesus said there on the cross. Tetelestai. Aramaic. It means it is finished. What's finished? The payment for your sin. Hey, you can't do it. You can't do it. I I don't know that we try to have perfect attendance in church anymore. I'll be honest. As a pastor, I'm like, can we at least come more than once a month? I'm looking at the choir. I know, I know. Just go with me here for a moment. But regular attendance, faithful attendance 50 years ago was, man, I'm there five out of four Sundays a month. Now it's like I'm here one and a half Sundays a month, and that's regular, active attendance in a church. But we don't gauge our relationship with the Lord based upon whether or not we're coming and how often we're coming. We gauge our relationship with Jesus based upon, do I know him as Lord and Savior? And when we know him as Lord and Savior, I believe he will lead us to be with the body of Christ right so where are we at this morning are we in the camp of the Pharisees who can't understand this new paradigm are we in the camp of Levi the paralytic, the leper and the fisherman who've experienced and come to Jesus and their life has been radically, radically changed who is Jesus? he's God, he's Savior, he loves you he wants to be in a relationship with you and he's calling you to himself even right now let's pray Father, we are grateful for that call upon our lives. We're grateful that you're pursuing us, that you are chasing after us. Lord, we see it all throughout the Bible. It starts in Genesis 3 and continues all the way to Revelation as you are with the hounds of heaven chasing sinners down, calling us To yourself. And Father, many in this room have answered that call. We've embraced you as Lord and Savior. We've turned from religion to relationship. Father, there's still that internal struggle as a Christian that we can get off track, not losing our relationship, but not focusing on that relationship as we should. God, when we do so, it messes everything up. God, we don't feel like we are a Christian. We don't feel like the Lord loves us. We don't feel, I don't want to major on emotions here this morning, but God, you gave us emotions. So I pray that, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, over the next few moments, that you just help Christians all around this room, those may be watching us online this morning, just do a self-assessment of themselves. Where they're at in their walk. Are they walking? Are we walking at a guilty distance? Or are we walking in step with Jesus? Lord, we know you want to walk in step with us. I pray you'd help us to do that. Perhaps there's sin that we need to confess. Perhaps there's something in our lives that's hindering that walk, that's causing us to stumble. God, I pray that we would identify those things and, and by faith just confess and receive forgiveness and, and move on in repentance. Lord, I pray for those in this room watching this online that have never taken that first step of faith. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Lord, I need you to change my life. I need a relationship with you. I'm religious, but that's it. God, I can concur with that. My own testimony bears witness to that and that transformation that had to take place. Father, we baptized some just a little bit ago, and that's their story. They had to turn from religion, in some cases, to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning, as we move into this time of response, give us freedom to move, freedom to respond, freedom to say yes to whatever the Spirit of God is laying before us. This is your time, Lord. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.